1: Oh my, Mariah is out in a new and improved form. Researchers find buggy smart contracts on Ethereum. A chase glitch briefly exposed banking customers' information to other banking customers. Activists continue to hit spyware companies. Verizon's Mobile Index warns that mobile security is being traded for business efficiencies. Tallis looks at data security and finds that data breaches seem to have risen with cloud migration. And the FTC doesn't like credential stuffing. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, February 23rd, 2018. A new variant of the Mirai Internet of Things botnet has been seen in the wild. Fortinet reports that this version is capable of establishing proxy servers in infected IoT devices. They're calling the strain OMG because its configuration table includes strings that contain OOMGA. Why is this development significant? We heard from Gabriel Gums at StealthBits Technologies, who compared illicit proxy servers to a criminal fence, a dealer in stolen goods. Once they're set up, they can be used for any number of illicit purposes. They could be used to stage denial-of-service attacks, or they could be used to drive disinformation campaigns. The fence will handle whatever goods the hoods want to move. We also heard from Sean Newman of Carrero Network Security, who has some related thoughts on what OMG might be capable of. He said, quote, We're used to seeing Mirai variants being used to commandeer IoT devices. And once the botnet's been assembled, it can run denial-of-service attacks against a particular target. But OMG seems to be nosing out vulnerable IoT devices in an organization, and once it's found them, it puts in the proxy so that device can serve as a gateway into the organization. Once that gateway is established, attackers can exploit it against the victim organization in any number of ways reconnaissance, data exfiltration, and so on, and quote. Mirai, of course, came to notice when it was used by some gentlemen in New Jersey to take down much of the Internet in the eastern United States in a distributed denial-of-service attack on DNS service provider Dyne. Three young men took guilty pleas this past December in crimes related to the use of Mirai in DDoS attacks against a range of targets. Since 2016, the Mirai code has become widely available and it's continued to evolve into new forms. Like OMG. University researchers in Singapore and London have determined that there are a lot of buggy smart contracts on Ethereum. Essentially, they create a private fork of the Ethereum blockchain and ran various permutations with live smart contracts. They found just over 34,000 contracts vulnerable to undesired actions. They were able to verify and reproduce these trace vulnerabilities on some 3,000 smart contracts that hold about $6 million in Ether cryptocurrency. It would be difficult for criminals to do likewise and steal the money, but the researchers note that it wouldn't be impossible. As one of the researchers noted to Motherboard, the whole business is mucky. University College London's Ilya Sergei said, We're dealing with applications that have two very unpleasant traits. They manage your money and they cannot be amended." End quote. A glitch in Chase Bank's customer facing systems is said to have presented some customers with other customers' data. The glitch persisted for about two and a half hours Wednesday evening, but appears to have been corrected. Chase stresses that the incident was not a cyber attack. Some observers speculate, to Krebs on security, that there may have been caching issues at the root of the problem. Motherboard reports hacktivist break-ins at two surveillance software companies, MobiStealth and Spymaster Pro. Hacktivists had earlier hit FlexiSpy and Retina X, so this particular subsector is receiving unwelcome attention. The report characterizes the two outfits as spyware companies, selling privacy-invading stalkerware to private citizens who use it to keep tabs on children, spouses, and other persons of interest. Motherboard also sourly observes that a number of the customer accounts revealed in the data breaches are linked to email addresses from various U.S. federal agencies – DHS, TSA, ICE, FBI, and various military services, especially the U.S. Army. Several reports are out on the state of security. Verizon's Mobile Index for 2018 concludes that many companies are willing to sacrifice some mobile security for business reasons. The 2018 data security report from Talis notes that increased government migration to cloud services has been accompanied by a 20% jump in data breaches. These are perhaps connected, maybe coincidental. You'll find links to both reports in today's CyberWire Daily Briefing. They're worth a look. And finally, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. seems moving toward adding some regulatory risk to the reputational risk credential stuffing already poses. The FTC has obtained a consent decree from online tax prep service TaxSlayer on the grounds that TaxSlayer didn't do enough to protect its customers from themselves. Credential stuffing essentially involves a hacker trying credentials exposed in one breach against a variety of other sites. Since people unfortunately tend to reuse their passwords, criminals get hits often enough to make this worth their while. Isn't that the user's fault, you'll ask, since, after all, TaxSlayer didn't expose anyone's passwords? Well, the FTC says no. The business should have done more, like requiring multi-factor authentication, requiring strong passwords, and alerting customers promptly whenever a password, address, or security question changed. Those businesses interested in how standards of care are shaping up under the FTC's regulatory lash would do well to consult TaxSlayer's experience. And I'm joined once again by Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Um, Emily, welcome back. You know, it's been about six months or so since AlphaBay was taken down, the uh, the primary dark web marketplace. Uh, so, so bring us up to date. Where do things stand? Have things come in to, uh, to replace that uh, vacuum there?
2: Not quite. Hmm. It's uh, It's been an interesting six months on the dark web. Uh, AlphaBay taken down, Hansa taken down, uh, this fall, we saw a lot of instability around these, you know, prolonged DDoS attacks that went on for several weeks. Uh, we lost a couple more markets in the mix. We saw a couple of smaller markets come up to prominence. Hey, it's been interesting. So the the brief recap, obviously, Alpha Bay and Hansa taken down uh, in June and July by international law enforcement. Uh, and then this fall, the remaining markets, which had been scrambling a bit, uh, kind of power not really consolidating with any one of them. No one of them really coming up to take AlphaBay's place. The markets were attacked consistently and uh, unavailable except for through uh, mirror links for probably about six weeks. Hmm. Um, and in that, we saw one market kind of quietly close its doors. You know, thank its customers and. You know, pay out any lost funds, uh, and one market that went down in uh, not at all a respectable blaze of glory. Uh, and so now we have a handful of markets, not as many as we did before. We have a couple of older markets that are still stable. We have some newer ones that are coming up. We have some alternative markets, uh, different cryptocurrencies that are being moved around. Really, it's uh, we haven't seen anything come in to fill that vacuum. We've just seen a little bit more skittishness uh, and people adapting to increased uncertainty, which really is what the dark web is all about.
1: Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask you next, is, is is the sort of tone, uh, the, the feeling. Uh, is there a sense that um, the people are looking over their shoulders more than they did since we've had these high-profile takedowns?
2: I think people definitely were in the kind of first wave of the fallout after Alpha Bay. I think people were with the initial uncertainty uh, with the markets kind of going down this fall. But in general, I think people are adapting, which is what you would expect in this community. People are adapting to having to use alternative links, to following vendors around different markets. I think we're just seeing uh, you know, more loyalty to vendors. Uh, I think we're seeing people take a little bit more responsibility for their own security. But by and large, I think the immediate fear and, and FUD has kind of died down.
1: Hmm. And you uh, you you say you've seen some interesting trends in some of the fraud markets, some shifts there.
2: Yeah. So the the fraud markets, in a lot of ways, operate separately as a separate ecosystem from sort of some of the uh, the drug focused markets. We've seen some markets there, you know, go up and go down as markets tend to do. Um, but also some of the markets are going to uh, more restricted access or pay to play, uh, and that's just interesting. I think people are kind of trying to protect their membership a little bit more, whether it's you know, you need to pay to access, you need to get a referral code. I think the community as a whole is just becoming slightly more skeptical.
1: Hmm. All right. Thanks for the update, Emily Wilson. Thanks for joining us. Our lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Andrea Little-Limbago, chief social scientist at Endgame. In her recent blog post on the Endgame website titled The March Toward Data Localization, she outlines the lag between law and policy and technology and how nation-states are taking different approaches to data security and sovereignty.
0: So it's one of the things that... I think, isn't discussed as much in our community. Um, Obviously, it's not as uh, sexy as the latest hack or um, high-profile cyber attack that's going on, but um, basically, as we've seen here, there's a lot of policy and legal frameworks has lagged behind technology, across the board in general, Um, but I think it's especially true in information security where a lot of laws, especially in the U.S., are 20, 30 years old, and we just kind of keep piecemeal, you know, building on top of them. Um, But the interesting thing is that, that that's actually starting to change, and so after... You know, I'd argue a couple decades of uh, slumber, the policy and legal frameworks are starting to wake up a bit. Uh, and I think it's going to really impact uh, cybersecurity for companies and just, and for uh, individual privacy. There's been so much talk about the um, GDPR, which is a uh, general data protection regulation that's coming into effect in the European Union in May. And so it's it's one of the first international regulations that's really had, had, had some businesses Concerned with how you know whether they actually adhere to that or not, what needs to be done to comply, uh, those kind of things. And so, it, when these kind of regulations actually start hitting businesses in the U.S., that's when there starts to be more discussion and uh, buzz about it. And so that's sort of what got me looking into it a bit more. Um, and then looking at, you know, the EU isn't the only one though, and that's one of the things that you know, for me I tend to study more so the um, other countries out there than the than the EU as much. And so. What the GDPR is is just, is just one example of this data localization, which is basically country-specific data laws for how data is processed or stored within a given territory. And they vary dramatically. So we're starting to see this large patchwork of data localization laws across the globe. And I just feel like it's something that hasn't been as... you know It's, it's been making the rounds, obviously, in more of the legal circles, but I don't feel like it has as much in information in cybersecurity. And so um, I want to elevate that discussion and bring it into uh, our community, because it will have a big impact, and then hopefully as well get more folks in our community with a technical background to, to provide some insights and in how to shape it so we don't turn out with some of these laws we've had in the past that uh, are counterproductive to our own defenses.
1: One of the points you make in this blog post is that there are two major frameworks that are gaining traction. You describe the multi-stakeholder model and cyber sovereignty. Can you describe those for us?
0: Yes, yeah, it's one of those things where I think that we're at an inflection point in the, you're looking globally at the how the international system is starting to, to shape itself, you know, um, if you think about the Cold War, just you know, to, to sort of frame it as far as um, something that people know more about, you know, you obviously had the, the Soviet bloc and you know, sort of the, the Western bloc, and that's you know, with different ideologies and ways of looking at you know, their economy, uh, how you free flow of information, those kind of things. Um, we're sort of seeing similar ideological divides starting to emerge, not adhering to those same tenets, but um, it's sort of that bipolarity starting to emerge as well. And so the multi-stakeholder model is one that tends to be more so... Uh, among European, um, you know, democratic countries, U.S., Australia, Japan, so forth, that are advocating for more of a free, secure, open internet. Sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the foundations for how the internet was actually, you know, how it was founded and emerged. Sort of the, more of the utopian on how um, the free flow of information can help promote societies, help economic development, help governance, um, provide, you know, access to all sorts of information where people previously didn't have that so That's sort of on the one hand, and then within that is a big emphasis on individual freedoms, and individual security, and privacy. And so, one thing I'll, I will say that these are sort of the overarching umbrellas, and obviously each country kind of adheres to these in, in different ways. So it's not just black and white, but these are sort of the two big buckets. And then the other one would be cyber cyber sovereignty, and that you know on the on the surface, you know, ostensibly it, it sounds really great. It's you know each country should have control over data within their own borders. So it sounds very similar to the notion of sovereignty, where they have where governments have control of um, you know. The, what go, you know, the laws and the legal frameworks monopoly on the use of force, those kind of things within their own borders. And so you know, perhaps it's just elevating that to you know, the, the the cyber realm. But it's really not there. It's under the umbrella of that. But really what a lot of it is is uh, countries using this notion of cyber sovereignty for greater control of data. Uh, so ha- accessing data for individuals within the country, um, it helps uh, justify various forms of censorship and what does and does not make it uh, onto the Internet so really, if you want to think about it, it's government control of the data. So it really is much more so limiting of personal privacy and more so empowering governments to have control and access to whatever data they want within a country. And that would be more indicative of like China Russia, but a lot of other ones as well are starting to introduce similar laws.
1: And so having those two different frameworks, what are the natural tensions that are introduced between them?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Uh, so on the one hand, you because it's been somewhat evolving slowly and it's really starting to manifest itself quite a bit over the last few years. Um, the tensions are starting to emerge. And one of the places where you see it a lot, uh, not you know, unsurprising, is at the, at the United Nations. So as the United Nations was trying to set forth what some global norms would be for cybersecurity, so what are the appropriate rules of the road that countries should adhere to, so what may or may not be off limits for an attack, what may or may not be off limits for, you know, for accessing data, those kind of things. And so you know, for the UN, who has you know, historically been there just to help establish... You know, international guidelines for country behavior. You're know, trying to establish those kind of guidelines at the international level for cyber um, is really, really difficult because for the past five or six years, the United Nations has a group of governmental experts that's been trying to pull together these various you know rules, of the roads, and the guidelines. And uh, just last year, it completely fell apart. And you know, my understanding is that people who have been in you know, were in within some of the the discussions. Um, it was this tension between you know the the, the view of the world from the China. Russia and some of those kind of countries, those perspectives, uh, in contrast to what European Union, United States, uh, and democratic countries were were trying to push for for what the norm should be. And so we saw those those discussions just completely fell apart last year. And so right now, you know, it remains an area of, of just you. Know, the internet remains largely you know, an anarchic system where there is no supernat you know supernatural control. And so every country is going, going to be doing their own thing, which basically means you know that so far you. Know, Countries vary dramatically on what is off-limits for targets, what's the right behavior, what kind of cooperation is okay. Um, All those things across the board are just um, up to every country's whims and up to their own incentives. So that's probably one of the biggest areas. But then you also see it a lot as far as bilateral relations between countries. You're starting to see more and more bilateral cyber agreements going on. And you see them a lot generally within each of these different areas. So you see the democracies starting to do their own bilateral agreements in cybersecurity and then the, the authoritarian regimes. You do see a little bit, um, the U.S. and China did do an agreement along the lines in 2015 of what would be off-limits to ban cyber espionage for commercial purposes. But again, because there's no teeth onto it, there's no repercussions for failing to adhere to that. It really hasn't had the teeth to actually provide any changes, uh, long-term changes in behavior.
1: That's Andrea Little-Limbago from Endgame. You can read her full report, The March Toward Data Localization on the Endgame website. It's in the blog section. We've got an extended version of this interview on our Patreon site at patreon.com/slash the Cyberwire. Our Patreon supporters get first access to it, and in a few days it'll be available to the general public. And that's the Cyberwire.